there. Pull up a chair. I will cover some things today to talk a little bit more about these orphan train riders. Well, 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 not as simple as it seemed. But let me cover a couple things here that I talked about previously. Um, somebody made an interesting comment that I, I don't, there was a story called The Boxcar Kids. It was a junior book series about a family of several orphans being raised by an older sibling that traveled boxcars like a vagabonds and hobos. And the family that I talked about last in China, the family here that adopted a child from China and then gave it up, I reviewed what my thoughts were at the time. The family is called the Stauffers, S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R-S, -F -F -E I think there's two F's in there. What happened was they got that child and where I think the thing seems really shaky and I don't know yet, um, what they said, now they had the child for a few years here in this country after they got it from China. And the part that I found shaky was that when they went to rehome or rehouse the child because of issues, very sad case. Um, you can look for a show called The Family YouTuber Who Gave Away Her Son, Mika, M-Y-K-A, Stauffer, S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R. This channel called the, the Right Opinion or something like that. They have a pretty good show about it. It's about an hour or so. It will give you all the details you want to know. But what I found fishy was how did they have that child here for a few years? Because what came out in this thing was that when they were ready to hand off the child, they just kind of handed it off in some sort of manner because they had not finished their adoption process, I guess, from the place in China to here. So, yeah, had the kid live here for a couple of years without them finalizing the adoption process. So, yeah, it, it's, you know, the rules are meant to be broken, okay? So, let's talk about these um, kids here. The um, These kids started striking me as very strange, this orphan train deal, um, because it's too, it, something about it wasn't making sense to me, okay? I think this entire deal was a massive repopulation of children that went on around the entire world. Why would I say that? Well, let me give you a couple of examples today that I found um, that show how they did it in a couple different countries. I've got, I think, the Italy and Russia I was looking at, okay, because this is going on all around the world, so I basically just sampled those two countries. Not that comp See, here's the thing. It's usually a very simple plan, right? Grabbing up babies and shipping them to this country, then putting them on trains to distribute them around is a pretty simple deal, right? Well, that's probably why they cooked up the whole deal about all those kids they said were running in the streets as little criminals around New York because somebody had to explain where all these children all this mass movement of children was taking place. A lot of it was taking place in the late 1800s, but it's still going on. And I'll show you why I think this. Because there were distribution points set up for these children. Years ago, I did research into how, um, you know, the dog 
breeding business works? Well, it's the same model. What they do there, a lot of dogs and stuff get bred in the Midwest, and really. So what happens is, is that breeders, um, all these little breeders all around, they know when the transport truck is coming through to pick up new puppies and stuff, okay? We'll just use puppies as an example. So what happens is the word goes out and people in all these outlying areas bring those puppies to this one location. The truck route runs through on its route, picks up a different location. So they were doing pretty much the same model here. So um, also it set up children. If you said they were abandoned and all this stuff, it takes away their records, right? No one knows where they came from because really they just put those kids on trains. And it didn't seem to be much reporting once they got going. And I'll explain a little bit also about how they um, came up for names for these children. So, yeah, it is just an incredible, incredible deal, okay? So, um, I pulled up, there was this one historical summary. It said, 19th, it was, I'll talk first a little bit about Italy, about how, they got this thing going with the churches and stuff, okay? And it said, 19th century Italy was deeply rooted in tradition, religion, and superstition. Everyone in the area worshipped in the same church, and women shared the same services of the same midwife. In such a close-knit community, secrets were few. For the unmarried pregnant woman, this was hostile terrain that presented limited options. She could remain in her family's home and attempt to conceal a pregnancy. But if shunned by her family, she could take refuge at the home of the local midwife until the time of delivery. Either way, she would most likely give up her baby, as keeping it would forever stigmatize both of them, okay? While many abandoned children were illegitimate, Poor economic conditions also led to the abandonment of legitimate children by parents who were unable to provide for them. For these parents, often the elimination of one mouth assured the survival of the other children. I'm not really sure I believe that, okay? I don't think parents just go and pick and choose which one they're going to ditch. So, um, Remember, these are psychopaths. They don't really understand who we are, and they have no empathy for who we are. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of foundlings things you can go look for. There's movies about foundlings. There was a 1915 movie about foundlings. A silent movie. Um, first premiered in 1915. And um, they said it's a lost film. But anyway, it was a pretty famous film. They had, up until 2019, I found another foundling, foundling film. And there was a, I was over looking at the Russian search engine, and there was a family film about the adventure of a lost girl in Moscow. I was looking into Russia. Why? Well, because look at the size of that country of Russia. And then I'll be talking about the system in Russia a bit, okay? Um, so, yeah, all these stories about orphans make total sense now, right? Because this is a worldwide effort to repopulate and control the population. So, not that complicated, right? Simple plan covered by a whole lot of chaos. I found a site that said, Most people today are kept unaware of the fact that there were a series of laws passed into effect in the 1800s Whereas unwed mothers 
were coerced to hand over their children to authorities. At the Foundling Hospital in London, and the Foundling Hospital in London, I'll get to in a minute, he founded the hospital in London. Guess where he got the idea from? Here. So, yeah, they, they, they booked like 4,500 children were supposedly handed over. I think we're talking about, yeah, some were maybe handed over, but a lot of them were probably stolen, and you'll understand why I would say this when I get to the part about Russia. Okay. Also, by 1847, the number of child migrants who had been identified as orphans in Canada were unprecedented. Everything is evolving around the late 1800s. Okay, so uh, they said that they were overrun. They usually manage in Canada and Quebec 10 orphans per year. They were overrun with more than a 100 in less than a month. And by years in, thousands had arrived. That was in 1847, okay? Italy fared no better. Infants were deposited into foundling homes in scathing numbers. And this is Italy now, okay? The trend started as early as in 1930. So this is all going on now, okay? Nearby Spain and Portugal saw as many as 15,000 annual foundlings each. You just have to look for that word, foundlings, okay? So, I'm not going to get too overly engaged in these numbers, but i got to tell you, it is a really ton of babies, okay? Let's get to Russia here. By 1887, foundling homes in St. Petersburg and Moscow began receiving over 27,000 babies on their doorstep. Historian David Ransel records that Moscow was receiving between 16,000 and 18,000 infants annually by the 1800s and sending over 10,000 of these each year to outlying villages for care. In 1882, there were all told 41,720 foundlings from the Moscow home living with 32,000 foster families scattered through 4,418 villages. A dozen villages had over 90 fosters each. Wow. Okay, so... Entire cartloads of foundlings, that's what they call babies were trucked in by women known as Komensikaris. And I will spell this because this is a fascinating part here, okay? It is spelled K-O-M-M-I-S-S-I-O-N-E-R-K-I. They were described as enterprising women who collected unwanted children in the villages and district towns. They cared for them temporarily, usually in squalid conditions, and then when enough had been gathered to make the journey profitable, just like those puppies they gathered up, right? They packed the infants into a wagon and hauled them to the Metropolitan Foundling Home. Fees for this service were substantial and reportedly provide the commissarkis with a comfortable living. Okay, let's look at Italy. I mean, I really could have gone to every country in the world, right? If you are in one of these other countries that I haven't covered, why don't you help me out? Use the word foundling. Get a grip on what the 
history is in your own country, see what you can dig up, and then send it my way. We need to start sharing things because I'm not going to be going around the whole rest of the world. I think this is pretty much where we need to look here, okay, because this is the key to population, okay, flooding the world with children from all different countries. And remember, a lot of these children probably did not speak English, right? And the babies certainly didn't speak English. So let's talk about Italy here. One of the most common systems used in churches and foundling homes was the foundling wheel that in Italy was known as Ruta de Periore. It is a wheel, W-H-E-E-L, okay? They called the proite, they were the abandoned children, literally thrown away from the Latin word. This wheel was a horizontal wooden and hollow cylinder with a small door on one side. It was installed to remain half inside the building and half outside on the road. A woman on the inside, altered by baby crying or the bell ringing, well, I don't know what that means. Oh, excuse me. A woman on the inside, alerted to baby crying or the bell ringing, could turn the wheel, bring the baby inside where it could be cared for and the mother could slip away without being seen. Okay, so there's some stuff about the 1700s. Not all that crazy about that. But yeah, they were saying that they were doing religious sex. And I don't know. So anyways, the wheel was used to accommodate ensure, and ensure the survival of all those children born in precarious situations. For example, when father did not recognize a child or did not want to remedy his sin. All about sin, right? or family that could not take care of the child because of poverty. So, there was a period in Italy, and I will go back a little bit here. It was called the Abruzzo and Molise, M-O-L-I-S-E, foundling. These wheels started to be widespread. In smaller towns, the foundling wheel may have been in the wall of a residence of a local midwife. She would have received the child, possibly suckled it immediately to keep it alive, or arranged for a wet nurse to do so, then taken it to the church to be baptized and to the town hall to be registered. I don't necessarily believe the whole registration process, but anyway, that's the story, okay? So, she then consigned a wet nurse living in or near the town to take the child and provide sustenance for a monthly stipend paid by the town. If the child was near death when found, many midwives were authorized by the church to baptize the infant so that its soul would not be lost. Okay, another, I, I don't, that's too 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 far back. Um, they say that church, church records were kept of all baptisms, even those of foundlings. From 1809, where civil birth records were institutionalized in Italy, not only were foundlings' baptisms recorded, but each child was duly registered. I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But anyways, so they say for normal deaths, they'd have normal births. Excuse me. They have the, normally the date and all those things about the foundlings. I'm not real sure. Um, maybe they let a lot of kids loose and said that they were adopted and abandoned. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be just one thing. It's not like every kid in the country got stolen, right? So, um, 
unless an abandoned child's parentage was officially established at some later date, more commonly by rectification, what's called a le le legitimization, that was filed that gave the names of one or both parents. So uh, they said when a, such a child married, even though he and everyone in the community knew who his parents were, if no official correction had been made, his marriage record would list his parents as unknown parents. See, there's a lot of fishy deals in this stuff, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, since civil records were open to the public, citizens could go to the town hall and ask to see the registrants. Unknown parents of a foundling could therefore see what name had been given to their child from the description of tokens or clothing, and sometimes to whom the baby had been consigned. Consigned, right? They might then reclaim the child, although recorded instances of this are few. If a legally married couple reclaimed a child, they would then go to the civil authorities for registration or legitimization, a correction which would officially name them as parents and legitimate, legitimize the child's birth. See, I don't understand. Too many, too many fishy deals going on here, right? People have babies. <laughs> they don't usually go around to churches and nursemaids and all that. But hey, the same thing is still going on. The nursemaids were probably the nursemaids now are the hospitals, right? You know, the hospitals where people walk in with fake baby bumps and walk out with real live babies. Connect the dots, folks. This is what it's looking like to me. So. It's just this is just how we got here, right? With the hospitals dishing out the babies, we got here from the early times. They were dishing out babies all over the world, babies they had very likely stolen. So yeah, um, you can look more for Italy if you're more interested. But here's another interesting thing: other methods were used to choose the surname of a foundling. Sometimes the name of a saint of the day was used. Other times, chosen surname referred to the location where the child was found, like the word Grandini, to remind the steps of a church. Earl Del Rio, if the child was found near a river. So, I don't know. Yeah, a lot of the child's names will have clues. So, if you're born and you don't know where you came from and you got a name like that, you might look to see if you're a foundling. So, the... Just, the just, Sorry, I flipped past my pages here. Um, the descriptive founding surname eventually became the person's official name. When a foundling boy grew up, was married, and had children, the children's surnames would be the same as their father's, even though they themselves were not foundlings. Many of these surnames exist to this day with their bearers having no idea that somewhere in their ancestry there was a foundling child. So you might have one in your history if you have one of these things. Eventually laws were passed prohibiting the stigmatic names and in small towns because the names were made up. They were invariably different than the surnames usually occurring there. Yeah, because they were easy to pick out because if you're in a village and everybody's got the same name, you know, same family resemblances and stuff, and you've got some weirdo name because you're a foundling. Foundling is a historical term applied to children, usually babies, that had been abandoned by parents and discovered and cared for by others. Discovered and cared for by others. Okay, that's the key word here. 
Abandoned children were not unusual in the 18th century when the Foundling Hospital was established. That was a pl place in New York that I talked about yesterday. It was a Catholic-run institution. So, yeah, yeah, foundlings. All you have to find is the keywords, and there you go. There's all the information right in front of us here. Let me talk about the um, London's Christ Hospital. Well, let me get back up here a bit. I'm trying to learn how to scroll around and talk and too many moving parts. And, hey, we've hit Pater today. Nobody broke out into a fight around here. I think the little darlings are all sleeping. Okay, so um, London established the um, Christ Hospital in 1552. I don't know. That's too long ago. Um, but there was a um, foundling hospital in London that's pretty key here. Let me get to that. Um, it is estimated that around 1,000 babies a year were abandoned in London alone. This was a situation that confronted Thomas Coram, C-O-R-A-M, on his return from America in 1704. Bingo! It would take Coram 17 years of dogged campaigning before he finally received a royal charter enabling him to establish a founding hospital for the care and maintenance of exposed and deserted young children. However, the term foundling is a misnomer in relation to the foundling hospital. For although its criteria and process of admission, admission changed over the centuries, mothers were required to hand over their children in person. There were only two exceptions to this rule. And that only lasted from just a couple of years. So um, what they did in order to get state support for the hospital early on, they were required to admit every baby through its doors. I think they have to do that here too, but huh, I don't think it happens. But So they admit every baby, and to this end, a basket was hung at the gates to enable babies to be left anonymously. So there was only a couple of years they cracked down, and the mothers had to do it on their own, which really is a pretty clever plot, right? Because supposedly a couple of years the mothers had to hand their own baby over, right? Now, all you have to do, get a baby, go drop it off, right? Doesn't have to be your baby. Who's going to know that you stole that baby? A lot of questions come up from this stuff, right? Anybody can drop a baby, just like here. Anybody can get a baby, okay? That is the horror of this thing. Um, and I said horror. Yesterday I called them horrors a few times. Um, yes, they are horrors, aren't they? Every once in a while I have to swear a little bit, okay? So, okay. Um, in return for state support, yeah, they were, they had to get the babies. But this is where it was interesting. Um, general reception led to soaring mortality rates and baby trafficking. And it would take the hospital many years to stabilize following this belief but change of policy. Yeah, so, of course they're going to have mortality rates in baby trafficking. The other exception applied to babies came with a donation of 100 of your British pounds, which guaranteed a place on a no-questions-asked basis. This scheme ran from 1756 to 1801, during which time approximately 75 babies were admitted. No, I don't believe in these numbers. So, um, yeah, and actually, you know what's very interesting now? 
they're returning all this. Okay. Um, they have, um, in, a, in a development that has been criticized by the United Nations, baby hatches, they're calling them baby hatches now, they were called baby wheels before earlier in Italy, right? Now they're baby hatches have been reintroduced, and I'm talking about now, <laughs> in Europe and also in China, where an estimated 10,000 children are abandoned each year. In 2012, it was reported by The Guardian that in the course of a decade, almost 2,200 baby hatches have been installed across Europe in countries as diverse as Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Poland, Czech Republic, and Latvia. Meanwhile, in 2015, the BBC reported that the U.S. state of Indiana also considered making the move to introduce baby boxes to prevent the deaths of abandoned infants. I don't know. I don't know. The U.N. has spoken out <laughs> against this spread. Warning that the practice contravenes the right of the child to be known and cared for by his parents. And for one time in my life, I would have to agree with the United Nations. That child has a right to be known and cared for by his or other parents. I really don't know what else to say. I don't think that unless I find something very interesting, I'm pretty comfortable that... There was a major movement in the 1800s, and, you know, that movement is still going on, but they're no longer using trains. They're probably using automobiles and planes to transport these children all over the place. Who can fly all over the world with never getting checked? Well, I checked into the United Nations. They only own a couple planes, if they admit. Well, who owns more planes than anybody in the entire world? Huh, let me guess here for a minute. Huh. Who is sneaky and evil and run by psychopaths? Huh, let me guess here for a minute. I just can't figure it out. And what organization never has to go through any kind of customs procedure? Huh, this is getting harder and harder for me to figure out. They got us all over the place, folks. This is part of the plan, not the bug in the system, okay? If you think you should trust any of these people, if you haven't cleaned out your own life of them, I suggest you get busy because the last thing you want to be doing is in a lockdown situation and discover there's a psychopath in your midst because they will stop at nothing. And I will get back to comedy next. I'm going to write Johnny Carson next. I need a break from the horror. I'm sure you do too. So anyway, be safe out there. Goodbye for now. This portrait by William Hogarth is a starter pistol for really the beginning of the contemporary British art world as we understand it today. Many of the things that we associate with contemporary British art, its popularity, its fashionability, its philanthropy, started with this painting of Thomas Coram. Thomas Coram was the great philanthropist whose idea the Foundling Hospital had been. And it was his 17-year campaign to get this hospital established that was supported by William Hogarth. 
this painting was the first work of art to be donated to the hospital, which was itself the UK's first children's charity. William Hogarth had a very unusual upbringing. His father made the slightly unwise decision to open a Latin-only speaking coffee shop, which not unsurprisingly went belly up. And in the 18th century, if you were bankrupt, it wasn't just you that went into prison, your whole family went into prison. So for five years of Hogarth's childhood, he was in the Fleet debtors' prison. So he knew firsthand that bad things happened to good people, and there was really no system to support them and help them. Hogarth was somebody who was drawn to scenes of everyday London life. Sequential stories that were told out over a series of prints about the escapades and the downfalls of foolish young people in a sinful city. And he also filled the images with cameo parts of popular people of the day, kind of like a hello or a grazia. You could spot famous people as you looked at these images and at the same time spot people who were just like you in them. But Hogarth knew that to be successful just as a printmaker wasn't enough in terms of his status. So a work like this portrait, which he considered to be his finest portrait, this was a real statement about the sort of ambition he had for his painting. So at first sight, this portrait looks fairly unremarkable. You see Hogarth using a number of the techniques that were attributed to Baroque portraiture. You would expect the sitter to be standing or seated you, the viewer, would be looking up at them. They would be surrounded by objects that spoke to their own personal wealth, because these would obviously be aristocratic and wealthy people. And then usually they might be seated in grand rolling landscapes, because they themselves owned large amounts of land, or they would be on a Roman ruin. You can see Hogarth in this portrait doing some of that. Is there a column? Tick, yes there is, a large piece of kind of Roman antiquity. Is there a distant view? Yes, you can see rolling seas. But as you look more closely, there are other things in the picture which are quite unusual. Most noticeably, Thomas Coram is wearing his own hair. He's not wearing a wig. And this was very unusual because for elegant aristocratic people, they wore wigs. His face is very ruddy. There's been no attempt to cover up the fact that his nose and his cheeks have lots of thread veins in them. His coat is quite crumpled and rumpled. It's beautiful red, but it's slightly shabby. The impression that you get from this man is the sense of somebody who is anxious to get up and get on and do something. And this is Hogarth indicating to the viewer what this man was like. Perhaps most prominently, the sunlight is shining on the Royal Charter, this scrolled document with the huge seal. And this really was the lifetime achievement of Thomas Coram. This was the permission from the King to enable him to establish a foundling hospital, a charity that would look after babies who would otherwise have been abandoned on the street. The Foundling Hospital wasn't just the UK's first children's charity, it was also the UK's first public art gallery. 
In the 18th century, there weren't really any places to see contemporary British art. So Hogarth was an incredible entrepreneur. He realized that Corum was building this brand new, huge building to house these foundling children. And he realizes that this new building has lots of empty wall space. So in donating this painting, he then persuades all of the leading artists of the day, artists like Ramsey, Reynolds, Gainsborough, to donate as well. And within a matter of years, it becomes one of the most fashionable places for educated people to come to visit. And of course, once they were here, as well as seeing the art, they could see the children having their meals, doing their lessons, singing in the choir, and their heartstrings would be plucked and they would give money. But these were also precisely the kind of people who might commission these artists to paint work for them. So it was a win-win situation. Hogarth instituted an annual dinner every November for the artist governors, and we have records of the amount that was eaten and drunk. These were riotous affairs, but also it was an opportunity for artists to all get together and probably have a bit of a moan about the state of British art. The Founding Hospital became the seabed for the founding of the Royal Academy of Arts, which was established in 1768. That all started here, and it all was triggered by this work. This portrait of Thomas Coram not only enabled Hogarth to position himself as a, a painter of real skill um, and note, Hogarth literally helped save children's lives. There are people who come into this museum who introduce themselves by saying, I've been doing some research into my ancestry and I have discovered an ancestor was a foundling. And you are looking at somebody who is alive and walking the planet in the 21st century thanks to the work of people like Hogarth and Coram who turned an idea for a children's charity into a reality and in doing so shaped the contemporary British art scene in ways that they would never have foreseen. And really the contemporary art world as we understand it and as we enjoy it really can trace its origins back to this painter and in many ways this painting.